Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for The Place Beyond the Pines. He's yours. Don't gonna tell me. I heard from you in over a year. Just took off. My son and I should be around him. I wasn't around my dad. Looked the way I turned out. How are you gonna take care of us? I can't think of another line of work that I'd rather be in. You're so smart. You can do anything you want. Just don't understand why you're doing this. I'm a cop, Jed. Got a kid? You want to provide for that kid? You got to do that using your skill set. Your skill set? Shit, damn. All right, everybody who wants to live, put your hands in the air! 105 in pursuit, suspect. 104, I got a visual on a motorcycle. Tom, it's for me. I'm still his father. I can give him stuff. Hey, I'm Officer DeLuca. We're here to search your house. What for? We're looking for the money that Luke Lanton, mayor, may not have given to you. 14 grand. The lion's share is going to our hero. This is your problem. This is our problem, and I'm bringing it to your attention because that's what I should do. I want to do two in one day. Yeah, get up! I'm not going to let you bring us both down. There's a way out of this. You're not going to like it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Eugene Hernandez from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and tonight's guest, Derek Sion France. Thank you. How are you? We've done this before. We welcome have. back. Thanks. Welcome back. Uh, we were talking about Blue Valentine. Um, really excited to sit down and talk with Derek about this new movie, Place Beyond the Pines, which is opening in theaters very, very soon. Um, is it this Friday or next Friday? This Friday. This Sorry. Friday, New York, yeah. All right, New York, so L.A. Those listening in from New York, check it out, L.A., New York, and uh, watch for it in your city uh, soon. So this is a movie that um, I hesitate to describe too much um, because I don't want to give anything away necessarily, um, but it, it, it weaves together a bunch of different characters. Uh, it looks at maybe... Um, challenges the notion of kind of good and evil or good and bad, right and wrong, maybe, better way to put it. Um, how do you describe it? For those who haven't seen it yet, we saw the trailer. How, how do you sort of want to follow your lead? Because I don't want to give Oh, man. That's the hardest thing as a filmmaker, I think, is to come up with your log line. You know what I mean? That's, and I'm like long-winded, you know? So uh, it takes me a long time to explain things. 
I would say it's a movie about legacy. You know, I started writing it about six years ago uh, when my wife was pregnant with our second son. And I was thinking a lot about everything I was born with and everything I was going to pass on to him. And I really wanted him to come into the world clean. And I wanted him to not have any of my... Uh, look, I grew up Catholic, so I think like everything I've done is like, a, you know, wrong. So uh, I didn't want him to have any of my sins. I'm right you there with I mean? you. It's Holy Week, too. So it's Holy know. Week. Yeah. Yes, Holy Week. The movie opens on, yeah, Easter Good Sunday. Friday. Good Friday. Good Friday, <laughs> yeah. Which is the day my uh, first son was born. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, anyway, I, I wanted to make a biblical film about that. You know, I was also reading a lot of Jack London at the time and thinking a lot about kind of the calling back of ancestry and... Uh, this idea of the eternity of every moment and thinking about America, you know, thinking about kind of being born into tribes in this country, you know, and, you know, you have no choice, you know, the, you know, you have no choice about, you know, the world uh, to which you're born into. And I kind of wanted to make a film where two uh, tribes in a small town city kind of collided. So um, to sort of set the stage then, uh, Ryan Gosling's character has a tribe, uh, Bradley Cooper's character has a tribe. They each have uh, young sons, young boys. Who yeah. are, uh, when we start the film, they're both uh, one, one year old? Yeah. They're both uh, young. They have both, young. Y- both have young boys who are exactly the same age. And um, they're both on, these two characters are both on different paths. Um, and, and they're both kind of, maybe the word I used earlier was right and wrong. They're both kind of trying to figure out, and they both grapple over the course of the film with the notion of right and wrong and how, how that can sort of affect the choices they make in their lives and how the decisions they make can sort of come back to them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing about right and wrong is interesting because, you know, in my life, uh, I've never met a hero. You know, I've never met a villain. You know, I, I know I don't know black and white. I know a it's lot blurry. of gray. It's gray yeah, yeah. I, let the, I know the gray. So this movie's a lot about the gray areas. Um, uh, you know, all of the characters in this film, it was kind of built kind of in a tragic... Uh, around like tragic cycles. Uh, my imagination tends towards the tragic, which is why I'm thankful I have movies to make. Because if I didn't have movies to make, I'd turn my life into that tragedy. Um, but uh, you know, Luke, for instance, Ryan Gosling, has grown up without a father. And uh, he finds out that he has a son. And the, the moment he sees him, the last thing that he wants to do is to have his son grow up the way he grew up and to feel the way he felt. So he decides to do whatever he can do to put himself in that kid's life. But yet, he has no tools to do it. Uh, you know, uh, and also, like, how is he going to really make a uh, you know, lasting impact on his son's life, you know, working, making $100 a week at a, as a mechanic? You know, that's not, never going to pay for college. You know what I mean? So he has to make big moves. And he makes these moves, uh, you know, wrong-headed moves, and uh, eventually gets himself taken out of his son's life. So by trying to avoid it, he ends up colliding into it. You know, uh, conversely, then you have Avery Cross, played by Bradley Cooper, you know, who's kind of born into this royalty in this small town, and he's expected to assume the mantle of power that his father has placed before him. But he wants to be his own man. You know, he wants to define, you know, he wants his own definition. So he drops out of law school and becomes a cop. Now, I don't think he was ever meant to be a cop. I think he was meant to be his father's son, but he's trying to avoid that legacy. And then as a cop, he makes this one mistake. And that mistake, instead of uh, 
paying for it instead of owning up to the mistake, he buries it and you know to avoid punishment. But that punishment kind of uh, corrupts his soul and that corruption gets manifested in his son. So again, this movie's about uh, avoidance and uh, you know sins and you know it, it, you know the echo of, uh, of of these collisions. When you bury a mistake, uh, especially when you try to bury a mistake in a movie, often that mistake comes back yeah. to, if not haunt you, affect you dramatically or affect those around you. Yeah. In a movie. Yeah. You know what happens in life too, and since we're at the Apple Store, I'll tell you a story about uh, a computer. Um, my wife one time, uh, I, had, I I'm, I'm on this like website with all the like parents and stuff in my in my neighborhood, you know, Fort Greene kids. And there was like a few years ago, there was all these muggings that were happening outside the subway. And, you know, people were getting their laptops jacked, you know. And uh, so my wife had to go into the city and she had to borrow my laptop to go into the city. So I said, hey, baby, just take, uh, we live in Brooklyn. I said, just take, uh, take a cab home, you know. She was like, no, I'd rather just take the subway. You know, cab's going to be 20 bucks, subway's 250, you know. I was like, no, you know, but a computer's like $2,000, you know. So just take, uh, take a cab home. You know, so she goes into the city, uh, she takes a cab home. You know how cab drivers sometimes get, get skittish? They don't want to go over the Manhattan Bridge, at least this guy didn't. He stopped in the Manhattan side of the Manhattan Bridge and kicked my wife out of his cab. And then she picked up another cab and came home. And she showed up, she came home, walked in the door, and I was like, where's my laptop? Uh, she had left it in the first cab that she got kicked out. And I was like, oh, man, avoidance, you know? If I would have just let her take the subway, like she wanted to, I would never have, you know what I mean? I was trying to avoid getting the laptop stolen. You get the, you get the story. It came back to haunt That's you. what this movie's about. <laughs> well, there's definitely, um, there's definitely a lost laptop in this movie. There is. There's a lot of pictures. When you lose your laptop, it's like you're losing your memory. You know what I mean? All your images, all your you know, sounds are on there. I, w I wasn't you know, like in the cloud at that time. <laughs> Hopefully you are now. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Ryan Gosling, uh, we'll start with his character. Uh, you've worked with him before, obviously, uh, and your experience working with him must have been good because you're working with him again in this film. You guys seem to have a, have a bit of a bond. Yeah, you know, I was, I was at his agent's house in 2007. We were having dinner, yeah. and we were, this was two years before we shot Blue Valentine. And uh, at dinner, I was just, I was just, you know, talking to him. I was just like, man, you've done so much in your young life, you know, accomplished so much. Is there, what, what haven't you accomplished, you know, that you wanted to do? What do you, do you fantasize about things? And he said, well, I always wanted to rob a bank. And he says, but I've always been too scared of jail. I was like, well, that's funny. I'm writing a, a movie about a bank robber right now. I said, have you given it any thought how you would do it? And he said, well, I thought I would do it on a motorcycle because I could go in with a helmet and no one would know who I was, disguise my identity. And then I'd leave on a motorcycle because they're fast and they're agile. And then I'd have a cube truck parked about four blocks away and I'd drive the motorcycle into the back of the cube truck and then the cops would be looking for a motorcycle, not a cube truck. And I was like, that's crazy. That's exactly what we had written into the script. And it was one of those moments of destiny, it felt like, you know? So I told him I'd make his dreams come true, you know? <laughs> and he wouldn't really have to go to jail. So, 
in the last movie, he probably told you he wanted to sing on a, with a ukulele outside of a he did. dress shop. Well, he did. He, d- he had to play a musician in Blue Valentine. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, what instrument do you want to play? He was like, how about the ukulele? I was like, how about not? How about something else, you know? <laughs> and he was like, no, ukuleles are the best. I was like, okay, fine, do the ukulele. You know, and, uh, yeah, and then he left me a voice message one day playing that song, You Always Hurt the Ones You Love. And I was like, you're right, I trust you. So on Blue Valentine, I mean, I'm sorry, on Pines, the same, similar sort of thing happened. He called me about six months before we started shooting, and he said, hey, D, how about most tattoos in movie history? I was like, oh, really, you want some tattoos? And he says, yeah, and I want to get a face tattoo. And I was like, really, a face tattoo? And he was like, yeah, face tattoos are the coolest. And he was like, and this one's going to be a dagger, and it's going to be dripping blood. And I was like, look, if I was your parent, I'd tell you, don't get a face tattoo. (laughs) But, you know, you're the guy, I trust you, do whatever you want, you know? So he showed up with these temporary tattoos. He spent all this time, you know, covering his body with these temporary tattoos. He had this tattoo on his face. And the first day we were shooting, uh, at lunchtime, there was something bothering him. He was off, you know, and he said, hey, D, can I talk to you? I was like, yeah, what's up, man? And he said, uh, he said, uh, I think I went too far with the face tattoo. And I was like, that's what happens when you get a face tattoo. You regret it, you know? And he was like, yeah, and I'm regretting it now. He says, can we, like, take it off and, you know, reshoot the stuff we did this morning? It wasn't that much stuff. We could, you know, pick it up. I was like, absolutely not. You know, this movie's about, uh, you know, about consequence. Now you're going to have to live with this tattoo for the rest of the movie. And, uh, and so all of a sudden it created this character who had made these series of kind of rash decisions you know what i mean he didn't made this character who didn't really think things through and then all of a sudden ryan was ashamed and he'd go into every scene not cool not as like it looks cool but oh i'm so ashamed i did this and uh and it created something really i think amazing in his performance that that, you know that i really love so you made him wear that shame you made him wear that decision that he had yes his mark of shame yes and it helped there's a scene you know in this in the movie where he goes uh, into a baptism, and the scene was written that he walks into this baptism where Ava Mendez and Mahershala Hajbaz Ali are baptizing his baby. And he was supposed to walk into the church, sit down, and kind of boil with rage at this other man holding his baby. So I set up this scene, this scenario. I put, you know, 500 people from Schenectady all dressed nice, you know, uh, you know, in their Sunday finest. I put uh, Ava and Mahershala Hajbaz Ali all dressed to the nines, you know, holding this baby dressed all in white. And uh, I put the camera in the back of the church and I told Ryan to come in and find a place to sit. And he came in and he was literally a marked man. He couldn't go anywhere. He was, all of his choices were screaming. And so he, instead of choosing to sit down with everyone, he went to the corner of the church. And we just panned with him. And then we moved into a close-up. And as the baptism was going on, I was noticing he wasn't boiling with rage. He was trembling. And it felt like this mortification, this humiliation, humiliation this deep regret was, was, was coming to the surface. And he began to cry. And all I wanted to do as his friend was shut off the camera, give him a hug, maybe like a wet napkin and wipe off the tattoo and say it's all make-believe, you know, it's, it's not real. But, you know, that's what we're always trying to get to in these films is that place where acting stops and behavior begins. It must be a delicate balance, though, and, and with an actor who's, who, at least from the, from the audience's perspective when you're watching him on screen, brings a lot of intensity to the roles that he plays. And, yeah. and he's putting you... 
he's making decisions on his own, but he's also, as a director, putting you in his hand. You're, he's in your hands, I should say. And, yeah. and you have to sort of regulate how, how hard you push him or how hard you push your other actors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... Uh, they, I, I'm, I work with some of the greatest actors on the planet in this movie, and they will be fine without me. You know what I mean? They'll still be great. Um, you know, I, I ask my actors two things. I ask them to surprise me, and I ask them to fail. Uh, I feel like as an audience member, I was an audience member before I was ever a filmmaker, so I like uh, being surprised as an audience member. I like to see things that I didn't expect. And so when I'm shooting a film and an actor does something that surprises me, I feel like it's going to translate to the audience, you know? Uh, so, you know, I, spent, I wrote 37 drafts of this script, you know, and when we get on set, if, if the, I've lived so long with my lines by the time I get on set that if they do my lines, I'm, I'm just bored, you know what I mean? I want them to do something new. I want them to own it. I want them to make these big choices, you know, and then I'll guide them. Um, and then also I want them to fail. Uh, I feel like if they can fall on their face, if they can embarrass themselves, then they can also do great things. Uh, it's kind of something that I live with in my life, uh, you know, kind of a driving force. Um, I, I was interviewing Danica Patrick, the race car driver, some years ago, and I asked her, I said, how did you get so fast, you know? How did you go so fast? And she said, well, her whole life, ever since she was a little girl, ever since she was six years old driving go-karts, she always knew how fast she could go, and she would always drive that fast, but then push it and go just a little bit faster. And by pushing her boundary, she would often crash. But by crashing, she was getting faster and faster and faster. So that's how I live my life as a filmmaker, and that's what I ask of my actors. I ask them to crash. Hopefully not on the motorcycle, though. Hopefully not. <laughs> let's let's um, switch gears and let's take a look at a scene from the movie. And then the first clip, I made a note for myself here. The first clip we're going to look at takes place uh, in a diner, and it's Ryan and Eva. Yes. Um, Tell us about their characters. Tell us about, tell us about their relationship a little bit, and then we'll see how it plays out in the scene. Uh, yeah, Ryan plays Luke Glanton. Ava plays uh, Romina. And uh, they had had a one-night stand about a year ago. You know, he's like in this traveling... Uh, 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 he travels around with a fair, uh, performing in this Carnival. stunt called uh, the, uh, the Globe of Death. Which you know, in Amer there's it's been around this in America for like uh, 70 years or something. There's like 22 guys here in the states that can do it. Ryan is not one of them. Um, but anyway, he goes around from town to town, and he had a one night stand with his girl Romina, and he comes back to find out that she has a baby. And uh, in this scene, he's kind of trying to offer. He's dreaming a bit about about their life together. Okay, let's take a look at a scene from Place Beyond the Pines. You want a house? I'll get you a house. You want to get the f out of here? We'll get out of here. I got that trailer. I'll get a truck. We'll hit the road. You pick a place you like, we'll stop. You don't want to be there. We're out of there. What about my mom? She can come. What about Kofi? He can stay. He can get his own girl and his own kid. That's every man's right. Sounds like a nice dream. Tell me about what interested you in the relationship between these two characters. 
before we get to the next relationship that kind of defines the movie? Uh, well, I think from Ava's point of view, you know, she's kind of torn between this man that she's in love with. Uh, you know, Luke is definitely this force of love, but that's a dangerous force. You know, she's also a mother to a baby. And, you know, she's torn between love and security, you know. And, uh, you know, as a, a mother, you know, it's a, that's a tough position. Or as a parent, that's a tough position to be in. And I think oftentimes you would choose... You know, I think being a parent for me, uh, how I see it is, look, being an artist is a selfish existence. And once I had kids, uh, being a parent is a selfless existence. And uh, as a parent, I think oftentimes you have to squash. It's what Blue Valentine was, was about in a lot of ways, was you know, for Cindy, for Michelle Williams' character, she was this woman who was having to squash her dreams. You know what I mean? For, to be a mother and to be a wife. But she was much more than that. So this is a woman, uh, Romina, who is choosing to be a mom and a wife. And, uh, and it creates this con conflict because she's torn. And she goes through the whole movie torn about that. Your wife is also a filmmaker. And she has a film playing at uh, Lincoln Center and MoMA at the New Directors New Films Festival this weekend. Yes, um, which is why I'm wearing pink to uh, support her tonight. Oh, very nice. So tell me about that dynamic of two artists in a family, two artists in a family, and um, to what extent do you talk to her about some of the dynamics that you're exploring in some of these films, in the last two films in particular? Yeah, I mean, you know, my hero is Cassavetes, you know, and I, I love how his films kind of reflected where he was in his life at the time when he was making those films. They feel really like, always like home movies. And now this movie, Pines, is very much an epic movie, but it's still very much an intimate home movie about kind of where I am as a man right now. Um, and in, as far as my wife goes, she's uh, the truth for me. She's the person that uh, I look to for... Uh, kind of a barometer of, of what I'm doing, if I'm doing it right or if I'm doing it wrong, you know? And, you know, as parents, we we're raising two boys together, and, uh, uh, you know, our life is very simple. We've stripped it down. Like, for me, I'm trying to be good at three things. That's it. I'm trying to be a good husband, I'm trying to be a good father, and I'm trying to be a good filmmaker. Now, granted, I fail at those most days, you know what I mean? But I'm still trying. Uh, I'm not a good friend. I'm not a really good son, you know, I'm, I don't have time to do any of those things. I only have time to focus on those. And so we've raised our kids, you know, without a nanny, without, you know, we just kind of trade. So I, I make my movies and then I go home and then let her make her movies. And then we just trade off, you know. She's definitely my inspiration, though. She's the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> Would you like to sing for us? No. <laughs> we, we've got a ukulele. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you break it out. <laughs> Um, I want to get to a couple. I'm going to move quickly to another clip because I want to get um, get the clips in, and I want to give the audience a chance to ask a question. So, so let's introduce um, to um, intensify the story here a little bit. Let's bring in uh, Bradley Cooper's character, and um, he and he and Ryan Gosling cross paths. And again, you mentioned it earlier. Sort of, you know, Bradley's character. Um, he's got his fam his father son dynamic. And then he makes a choice. Something happens and he makes choices about how to deal with what happens. Um, and for much of the movie, he's kind of struggling with those choices and struggling with um, those, those decisions. And, and, and he still has his father in his life. And his father is an important part of, or seems to be an important part of his decision-making process. Like he's reflecting 
aspects of his father and, and struggling with what direction to go, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit more about, about Bradley's character and then the father character, that dynamic you're exploring between this father and this son. Yeah, well, I think Bradley's character is trying to avoid this legacy that his father has set before His uh, dad's a famous him. guy in this his small dad, town. His dad's like, yeah, a, fa- uh, a very powerful judge in this town, retired judge, and he wants his, he's trying to groom his son to be his heir, you know? And I think as a lot of people that I know who grew up to very powerful parents, uh, the children are always trying to get out of the shadow of their parents, and that's what he's trying to do, but he's failing at it. He, as, when he tries to get out of the shadow, he makes these big mistakes, and then he has to cover those mistakes up, but he's still, at his heart, a good man. Um, and so he ends up kind of, in, in this scene, there's corruption going on in the police department, uh, and he kind of overcompensates trying to clean up what's outside of him instead of dealing with uh, you know, his internal corruption. So this is Bradley Cooper's character with the police chief? Yeah, Robert Clohessy. Great, great actor. All right, let's take a look at this scene. This is recovered from a house during a search. No, wait, 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 wait a minute, Gross. Just a small fraction of what's going on. Wait a minute, Gross. Don't say another word. What do you mean? No, no, no. Don't say another word. What do you expect me to do with this? You're joking, right? Listen, Chief, this ain't my problem, all right? This is your problem. This is our problem of the police department, and I'm bringing it to your attention because that's what I should do. Oh, yeah, is that right? Yeah. Is that what you should do? Right out of the cops? This is unbelievable, right? Get the out of here. The, fil- the film is <clears throat> the film is structured in a really cool way with um, these three extended moments in time for <clears throat> excuse me for the for these um, characters and and these moments that are kind of turning points for these characters. Um, tell me about how you came about this structure. So there's 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 a there's a part A which has which explores kind of um, the relationship between uh, Ryan and Ava. There's a part B that explores um, much of what's going on and uh, re- re- referred to in this scene. And then there's a part C we'll talk about in a minute. But tell me about the structure. Yeah, uh, 20 years ago I saw Napoleon by Abel Gantz for the first time, and uh, the triptych at the end of that movie uh, just kind of blew my mind. The whole movie, you know, you know, made a strong impression on me. But it was that triptych at the end that got me thinking how I would like to make a triptych sometime in my life. Of course, I didn't know what story I was going to tell. I just had this formalist idea of making a triptych. And then also 20 years ago I had seen Psycho for the first time. And I'd always known that there was a shower scene in Psycho. I just didn't know that you had to spend 45 minutes with Janet Lee before she went in the shower. And then there's this amazing baton pass from her to Tony Perkins. And uh, that structure was kind of playing in my mind forever. And then my wife was pregnant, and I was thinking about legacy, and I was thinking about passing that torch. Uh, between generations, and all of a sudden, I had uh, that it just it just it just fit inside of this inside of this structure that I had been thinking of for all these years, and uh, and it was just uh, instantaneously that the story came. 
Uh, and then I met with some writers, and I met with this guy, Ben Coccio, who had also directed Zero Day. I met him at the Donut Pub in New York City, and I told him this idea, and he latched on to it. And we agreed on that day on three things. We agreed that we would do this three-part movie and that we would, we would do it uh, in chronological order. We would resist the urge to intercut it. And that urge to intercut it, that pressure to do that, came a lot you know, from people over the course of making the movie because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. I mean, it's what I did on Blue Valentine. You know, I intercut the movie. It's what Tarantino does. It's what, uh, you know, so many great filmmakers have done. Uh, Coppola, D.W. Griffith, you know, parallel editing. But with this movie, I felt like it was about consequence. It was about uh, uh, kind of all these events that lead up to a violent moment and then the fallout from that violence. And I didn't want to have the sanctity of flashbacks. You know, I wanted to kind of, you know, in dealing with violence in a movie too, I didn't want to put a gun in a movie and treat it lightly. I kind of, I wasn't interested in fetishizing the violence in this movie. I, was interest, I wasn't interested in making it beautiful. I wasn't interested in making it visceral. I was trying to make narrative violence. I was trying to make violence that affected the story. And as you watch the story, you actually have to live with it as if you would live with it in your real life and violence, uh, you know, a violent event happened to you or someone you loved, you know, you can never go back from it. Um, so that, that made us, you know, stay strict to this linear storytelling. Second thing Ben and I agreed to was that he was from Schenectady and my oh, wife really? was also from Schenectady. So we agreed we would set the movie in Schenectady. The title of the film, actually, The Place Beyond the Pines, is the Iroquois translation for uh, the word Schenectady. And then we also agreed uh, his favorite movie was Goodfellas, as was mine, and so we agreed we'd write a role for Ray Liotta. <laughs> and then uh, and it, was, it was like two kids just dreaming. And then all of a sudden, five years later, here Ray Liotta's at my house, you know what I mean? And I introduced him to my kid, Cody, you know what I mean, who was in, in the womb, in utero, when I came up with the idea. I was like, Ray, this is Cody. And within 30 seconds, Cody was crying because Ray is like a human knife, you know? And I was just like, this is so great. I can't wait to get Ray, to, you know, and Bradley Cooper together. A human knife? So he you stab your child with Ray Liotta? Yeah, right? I mean, he is a sweet, sweet man. He's and, intense, and, I, and I think someday they're going to put him, uh, you know, on a mountaintop, carve his face into a mountaintop. I think he's in the national treasure, that guy. Um, you know, one of our great actors. But for a filmmaker like me, he unnerves everybody, myself included. So if I can put him at a dinner table with six other actors, like Rose Byrne in one of these scenes uh, at the dinner table, which we don't have here, but uh, she, had to, she marched off set for like uh, an hour because it was, Ray is pretty intense. To what extent, in a great way. <clears throat> to what extent are you thinking about that? We talked, I asked you about this in relation to, to Ryan a little while ago, but to what extent are you thinking about the way your actors will impact each other, and to what extent are you kind of orchestrating that, letting it happen, trying to pull it back, trying to rein it in, trying to control it? Yeah, I mean, I, I treat my actors uh, like athletes. You know, I, I consider myself the coach, and they're going and running plays for me. The best thing is if they just make magic happen in the plays and throw out the playbook and make something great. You know what I mean? Just, you know, that's what they can do, actors can do. They're, they're, they're magical people. Um, and yes, I'm trying to, in the casting process, come up and kind of know who they all are and know different buttons to push with them because I'm also like, an, I can instigate things, you know? Um, so I know when to throw Ray into the, into the ring and I know what he's gonna do. 
um, you know, the interesting thing in the next clip we're going to see is about the kids that play, you know, the two kids that play, you know, Bradley Cooper's grown-up son and Ryan Gosling's grown-up son. Well, not grown-up, like 16, 17-year-old kids. And uh, I had the hardest time finding these kids, um, you know, in the casting process. And there was this kid, Dane DeHaan, who my casting director had asked uh, Dane to come in and be the role of AJ, who was Bradley Cooper's son. And Dane read the script, and he didn't like AJ. He liked Ryan Gosling's kid. And so he put himself on tape as, as, as Ryan Gosling's kid. And my, my casting director came to me with the tape, and she was like, well, this guy, you know, Dane, he's a great actor, but he doesn't want to play AJ. And I was like, well... You know, he sounded pretty arrogant to me. You know, thinks that he knows better than than the casting director. So I said, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll find a team player. We don't need to use him. And so I looked at like 500 kids, and I was getting desperate and desperate and desperate, more and more desperate as the weeks went on, and I wasn't finding him. And finally, six weeks out of production, I thought to myself, well, I'll take a look at that tape. You know, so I looked at the tape and it was great. He he was the guy. He was he was so good. And so I called him up and I said, "Hey man, I trust you with everything. You know, come be in the movie. I believe you." You know, so he came in to you know to be in the movie. And then there's this thing that happens in Hollywood. Uh, it's kind of the, the the term de jour, which is chemistry reads, which you get a couple actors together and see what their chemistry is going to be like. You do that in you do that in the audition process because you get you know, get to know how they're going to act on the screen. And uh, all these guys came in, and all of a sudden this kid, Emery Cohen, came in, and he sat next to Dane, and they're sitting like me and you are sitting in the casting room. And I felt like these kids were like two young wolves, you know? They had, they were like, uh, you could tell they had like chips on their shoulder, you know what I mean? And they were kind of one-upping each other. And it was kind of tense, you know? So I asked them a question. I asked them an icebreaker question. I said, name your favorite actor. And Dane says... Uh, I'm sorry, Emery says, uh, no question, Marlon Brando. And Dane said, well, I always like James Dean. And then they started arguing about who was better, Marlon Brando or James Dean. And I just sat back for 15 minutes and watched this argument between these two guys take place. And I was just like, this is perfect. This is, this is, this is their relationship, you know? I could just let it go. And so I said, okay, okay, let, let's agree to disagree. You like Brando, you like James Dean. I said, name someone else, you know? And uh, uh, Dane said, uh, well, I always liked Al Pacino. And Emery was shaking his head, and he says, De Niro. <laughs> so I was like, I felt like they were cut from that cloth, you know, and I could trust them. And then this scene here that we'll show next is like the first day of shooting. And I remember Ray Liotta came to set. I remember my wife came to set. Because no, this movie is doing crazy things and passing this b baton and passing uh, the protagonist from one protagonist to the next. And, of course, you don't know until you get on set if they're going to work. And this was that first moment. I remember both Ray and my wife were both like, these kids are, are great, you know, so you can see James Dean and Marlon Brando. So these are the two boys, the sons of Ryan and Bradley's characters. And let's take a look. Another scene from Place Beyond the Pines. Where are you from? Troy. Troy? Yeah, you heard of Troy? Yeah, I've heard of Troy. Where's Troy at? Right next door, dude. Right what? next door. I would have guessed you were from Long Island. Where's that? Where people that talk like you come from. <laughs> I'm bored as a mother. I'm here, dude. I've been here for like three days. I'm bored out of mine. Welcome to Schenectady. What you do is do for fun. Nothing. 
This is it. This is what I got for a year. No, we got some things. What? Don't say like a mall. If you say a mall, <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. Let me ask you just one more question and then we're going to yeah. get to questions from the audience. I was just thinking about it as you were talking. We've talked a lot about acting and casting. Help us understand, for those of us uh, who aren't filmmakers, um, if you can describe in sort of um, a layperson's language the notion of casting. Because you, you mentioned earlier how you'd seen like hundreds of guys for this character and you just wasn't working. What is it about a casting process? What is it about an actor? Have you, can you verbalize in any trust. way? Trust. It's all trust. Instincts and trust, you know? You have to see someone and, first off, to be a filmmaker, you have to have instincts, you know? And you have to also be able to be wrong. You know, you have to trust your instincts. There was, you know, there's certain times as a filmmaker, like there was a certain project that I was offered to do a while ago. And uh, something that I just didn't, my instincts just said no. You know, and everyone around me was saying, well, what if your instincts are wrong? You know, what if this turns out to be a big hit? And my, my response to that was, well, then I'm doubly screwed. You know, then I'm dead forever because I will have just taught myself that my instincts don't amount to anything. And I'll never go inside to look for the truth anymore. I'll go outside. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm gone. If you, if you lose your instincts, you're gone as a filmmaker. Um, so there's that. You have to trust it. And when I saw Dane's tape, I just all I what I wanted to do was watch it, and I kept watching it. And I would show everyone, just like when I was uh, 10 years old and I got Creepshow on VHS. You know, I would show everyone that movie. You know what I mean? Because I just loved it. Just it's what I liked. You know. And so Dane was just what I liked. You know. And uh, and then when you work with an actor, you have to believe in them and you have to trust them that they're going to. Uh, do it. You know, they aren't, actors aren't parrots. You can't make them do it your way. And if you try, or at least if I would try, they would, uh, it would be a disaster. It would be in, it would blow up the movie in my face. So I want them to bring something. When I cast people, I'm asking them to be themselves. I'm looking for a collision between the actor and the character that I wrote. But isn't it hard when you're at like actor number 498? Yes. And you're thinking, I mean, how do you not compromise your principles and say, well, you know what, maybe this guy isn't so bad. Yeah, you can start to convince yourself, you know. You can say like, well, maybe I can get him into it. Maybe, so, But you're, if, you're, if you find yourself convincing yourself, you uh, it's usually wrong. You know what I mean? You have to, there has to be an instinct, a gut, whatever they say. You know, you have to feel it. And, you know, it's the same thing that happens than when you're on set. And you're shooting. How do you know to move on? You have to feel it. You have to feel that you got it. You know, so everything in filmmaking to me is about that instinct, you know, and trusting those, you know, your impulses. So that was it. And yeah, there were some kids that I th that would would have been f good in this movie, fine, but they weren't. It wasn't destined to be them until you you, you know I found them, you know. All right. Let's uh, let's switch gears. Let's take some questions from the audience, and we have microphones. So we'll start on this side. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, what are your common battles that you find yourself facing to get a movie made and released? And then what daily actions do you take so that they don't defeat you? Okay, daily, okay. Well, you know, I had this happen with Blue Valentine. It was 12 years of rejections, 
basically, before I got that film made. I remember writing it uh, on Super Bowl Sunday, 1998, in Sundance when I first started writing it. I remember it because the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl that weekend, and it was a glorious day in my life. You're from Colorado. Yes, I'm from Denver. So, um, and I remember three months later, I had my script finished, and I remember at Sundance, I had 12 business cards in my pocket. And uh, I remember standing over a copy machine and printing out 12 scripts. And I remember putting those 12 scripts in 12 manila envelopes and writing down the business card name on every one of those envelopes and putting stamps on those envelopes and sending them out and preparing that in three months from that day, I would be shooting the movie. You know, by that summer, I'd be shooting. Of course, three months came and there was just radio silence, nothing. It was just on an island, an absolute island. So I thought, well, what am I gonna do? Get, maybe it was a sign that it wasn't good enough, you know? So I went back and wrote it again. And this process uh, went on for 12 years, every three months, until I had written 66 drafts, until I had storyboarded 1,224 shots, you know? Uh, until, like, everyone in my life thought I was delusional, you know what I mean? It was like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, working on the movie, we might be getting close. And people were just like, you know, on to the next thing. You know what I mean? Just ignoring it. But it's a stubborn, it's kind of a stubborn pursuit. I have to say that by the time I finally did make Blue Valentine, I, I didn't want to make it. I was writing Pines. I wanted to do Pines, you know? Uh, but the only reason I did it was just out of pure stubbornness because I think it's important to finish. You know, so I don't know. It's a for me. It's been a. It's it, for everyone's different, but it's been a, a balance between stubbornness and patience. You know, there's that great line in Altman's Popeye where he says, uh, "I ain't no doctor, but I know I'm losing me patience." <laughs> that was like my favorite line for like 12 years. You said that you were working on um, the Pines for a number of years. What were like the several evolutions like, of? of the script as you kept like workshopping it and just like, yeah, the manifestations of it. I mean, so many, numerous, because it's such a huge movie. Uh, I'd say the biggest evolution happened when I, when I had to think of ultimately what was the film gonna be about. And when you see it, if you see it, you'll see that there's a climactic scene. And I had to think about what was, what was, I, what was I gonna put into the world? Was it gonna be a story of vengeance? It would, that would be probably pretty satisfying for a viewer, but it's not necessarily something I feel in my heart. You know, and I have kids, and I don't really want to put that into the world. I started thinking, could it be a story of uh, hopelessness, you know, uh, suicide? Um, but I'm not a cynical person. I'm not a pessimist. I'm kind of a natural optimist, you know? And so ultimately it became a movie about forgiveness. So I think there was a cycle in these 37 drafts that I wrote between vengeance to hopelessness, to forgiveness, um, you know, uh, and, and everything in between those, you know. Um, I will say, though, that my final draft of the movie was 158 pages, and my financier said, well, you can have the $10 million if you get it to 120. And so I couldn't figure out how to do it, you know, it was so big, so I found the shrink font button on my, again, on my lap, on my computer doing all this on my computer. So you, and, got uh, down, you got it down to 120, but the type was really tiny. I got small type, and I extended the margins, and uh, no, you know, it, it got it down to 120, and no one knew. You got the no, money. No one caught it, and they gave me the money. But, but you, again, you can't really... <laughs> There's maybe a moral to this story, though, because six months into the edit, I had a three and a half hour movie on my hands. 
and there's no shrink font. Apple hasn't designed that for images yet, you know? So, uh, you know, I did think that if I took one frame out for every 24 frames, I could make a 23 frame a second movie. Um, but it looked weird, and it was only seven and a half minutes. It didn't really do it. So, anyway. It was not unlike Ryan Gosling's face tattoo. You had to live with that I had to live for the rest with, of the yes, movie. Yes, my hubris. Um, kind of going back to the first question, did, is there something that happened that made Blue Valentine happen after 12 years? Or any of the movies? Uh, you know, what do you call that? Um, it just became inevitable. You know, I knew I would make it by, by the time I died, you know? And, you know, it, I just knew it would happen. And eventually enough people started. I believed in it so much. There was enough people, you know, that kind of built this army around me of, of people believing in it. And that, you know, that included Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. I mean, Michelle was on the team for seven years before we finally got it made with her, you know? So it's just timing, you know? Just, you know, a lot of it's about timing. That 12 years was the worst, you know? I, I hated living through that, you know? I felt cursed, but I have to say I'm very thankful for that time now, in, you know, in, in, in you know, uh, looking back on it because I wasn't ready to make, uh, to, make, uh, to make Blue Valentine 12 years earlier. I didn't have a family, I didn't have children, you know? And I didn't think I could, you know, my life experience had to, had to uh, you know, had, had to evolve, you know, my ideas, you know? Yes, hi, uh, kind of piggyback on the whole consequence, sorry, consequence yeah. bit. Uh, with any, any kind of art, there's a certain amount of responsibility you have to, uh, you have to hang on to. Um, what choices um, have you made that had negative consequences on film. I mean, film's a pretty permanent thing. Yeah. Is there anything you wish you'd gone back and done differently? I mean, you know, I, I am a perfectionist and in per striving for perfection, you're never happy, you know? It's never done, it's never finished. Um, I look at my films as very imperfect, um, but they're striving, you know what I mean? They're trying, uh, uh, you know, consequence, uh, yeah, I look more about like the big picture. I talked about like having kids and I, you know, my kids are always asking me, they're saying, dad, why don't you make a film that we can see, you know? And th the thing is they can see these movies someday. I'll be proud to show them to them. Um, what I wouldn't be proud to show them is something that was, uh, you know, kind of had a mean center to it or kind of, an, uh, I don't know, there, there was a, you know, I've been reading a bunch of scripts and I have to say like half of the scripts I've read uh, the female is a prostitute, you know? Uh, I was reading a script on the plane the other day, and like on page 20, the girl got drugged, raped, and her throat slit. And it also came with like a big, lot of zeros on the paycheck, you know what I mean? But then I thought to myself, not for any amount of money would I ever do that, you know? Would I ever put that into the world? Because if I did that, then my kids would never be able to see it, you know? I would have to hide it, you know? So I'm just trying to be responsible for my actions as a filmmaker and put things into the world that, uh, yeah, my kids can live with. Hi, um, watching uh, Blue Valentine, one of the things I found is it's actually very real, uh, quite scary to actually have been in those positions and had those kind of crappy conversations with girlfriends or ex-girlfriends. I wondered um, at what point do you take so much from personal experience and what point of its fabrication? And when you're writing, how conscious you are of keeping that real 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a, a writer. Like, it's not my... Uh, it, it, that doesn't come easy to me. It doesn't come effortlessly to me. So uh, how I've learned to write as a filmmaker is just to confront uh, my, my vulnerabilities, my insecurities, my fears, also my hopes and dreams. But I just write from a very personal place. And then when I give it to actors, it's... Uh, it's really raw, you know what I mean? And I, I give them a script that's kind of filled with challenges and instigations, and then I'm hoping that they will be brave, courageous enough to go put that up on the screen, you know? Um, I will say that actors, to me, that, you know, since I do work from a place of fear, um, you know, the actors, to me, that I relate to are the ones that are scared. Um, I don't relate to fearless or overconfidence in people. Um, I relate to uh, courage, and I don't think courage is about the absence of fear, I think it's about the presence of fear. So I'm always looking for people that are scared, but uh, willing to, to face those things. And I think if they can do that on the screen, I think it makes, uh, you know, that's what I've been doing the last couple films. Hey, I was here at the Q&A you did for Blue Valentine and at the Angelica, and I remember you mentioning how hard it was for it to get funded and for people to want to put out the film. Has it gotten easier now that Blue Valentine was made and the press that you got with it? Yeah, I mean, I had, uh, after Blue was made, I, you know, I had this script ready to go, and uh, I had, you know, people that were willing to go for it, you know, so... Yes, I'm, you know, still all in all, Blue Valentine took two, two years, I mean, sorry, 12 years, 66 drafts. This was six years, 37 drafts, so I'm getting faster, you know? I'm, Do you have another script ready? Uh, I have a TV series called Muscle that I've been writing with uh, this guy, Sam Fussell, who is uh, an author, uh, who is an author. Uh, he's now a hunter and a rescue diver that lives in Montana. And he's the best, uh, one of the best people I've ever met in my life. And in the 1980s in New York City, he had come back after graduating Oxford and his parents were famous authors and he was kind of expected to assume that mantle uh, of, uh, you know, that, that his parents had set before him. But he, is, uh, he, was, he was scared. He was in the city and he was just terrified of the city. And, uh, he was getting mugged, and he decided that you know he was in the Strand bookstore one day looking at autobiographies because he wanted to find how other people dealt with their life. And he came across Arnold Schwarzenegger's biography, and he thought that maybe if he put a wall of armor around his body that he could remain a coward, and no one would ever know. So it's the story of this incredibly scared guy who becomes an incredibly intellectual guy who becomes a bodybuilder and it's his true story you know five years later he was he had put on 80 90 pounds of muscle he was at his strongest he was his most weak he couldn't breathe because of his lung capacity had diminished he couldn't walk because of his thighs were so huge that they would rub against each other and chafe and bleed and uh, you know he couldn't sit down because of all the steroids that he had injected into his you know, buttocks, uh, uh, and so he quit. And then he became a writer, and he wrote a book about it. And then all of his family, who never understood why he was going into the bodybuilding world, all of a sudden welcomed him with open arms. And all the bodybuilders who welcomed him with open arms now thought that he was betraying them. So it's, you know, and now he lives in Montana on, uh, you know, a couple of acres of land, and he's, you know, surrounded by a barbed wire fence, you know. So it's, it's really about, uh, you know, the isolation of the American male. All right. Well, our guest here at the Apple Store, Soho, has been Derek Cienfrance. Where does your last name come from? Uh, America. 
Did I pronounce it right? Is it C? Yeah, C in France. It was Chanferrani, which was uh, the Italian uh, name. But uh, half of my family changed it to France for some reason. They were Italians, and they named their last name France. But, yeah, anyway, my dad's name is C in France, so that's my name. All right, very good. Derek, thanks for being here today. Thank you. The film is called Place Beyond the Pines, opens in New York City this Friday and around the country later this month.